All right, please turn with me to Romans chapter 15. We're going to be stepping away from Exodus just for this morning. Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. And if, as you turn there, please remember that God's word is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. Romans chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let us each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. May God bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, not just in our salvation, but in all of life, we confess that it is the Spirit who gives life, and the flesh can do nothing at all. Lord, in order for us to hear your word this morning, in order for us to apply it to our lives, um, your Spirit must do the work, or we are like those dead bones in Ezekiel's vision, Spirit you must breathe on us. And that's what we want this morning, Lord. We want an encounter with the living God. And so we pray that you would do this, for we pray it in our Savior's name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. If you look in our passage here, Paul describes not just the the church in Rome, but all churches everywhere throughout all time um, to have weaker brothers, those who are incorrect on, on some article of faith or practice, and stronger brothers who on that same particular issue happen to be correct. Paul's goal here, though, in Romans 14 and 15 is, is not that we would all have perfect and correct doctrine. And just hear me out here. The goal of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not, it's emphatically not, that we would get all of our doctrines correct. Um, that doesn't mean that doctrine is not important. Doctrine is actually very, very, very important. The first charge that Paul opens up the pastoral letters with is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. And he tells Timothy, charge, command, certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, any heterodox doctrine, doctrine that is not orthodox. So Paul believes, and so should every Christian, that doctrine is vital. It's important. It's essential. In fact, we can't worship Christ upon apart from doctrine. It's impossible. But <laughs> correct doctrine is not the end goal. It's not the ultimate goal. Paul, Paul says two verses later, the aim of our charge, the telos, the end, the goal of this charge to not teach different doctrine is what? It's love. The aim of our charge is love. 
all the doctrines of the gospel are meant to restore us back to God, that we would love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, and that we would love our neighbor as ourself. That's the goal of every word in this book. The goal then here is that we would welcome each other as Christ has welcomed us, that we would bear with each other as Christ has bore with us. That's Paul's main point in our passage. Now, I, I hope that this, I hope that you've already adopted and accepted what I'm about to say. In every church, um, all of us are weaker brothers on some points, and all of us are stronger brothers on some points. Uh, there's not a category in the church, well, the weaker brothers sit on this side, the stronger brothers sit on this side. That's not how it works. We are weaker and stronger in different areas. Um, can you admit that? C can you say that, look, I, I am a weaker brother on some things. I might not know what those are, but I know that I'm still learning. I still err. I still have blind spots. I still have ignorance. And, and those things that I'm the stronger brother on, I can't take credit for because it's by the grace of God that I'm the stronger brother on them. Can you say both of those things are true about you? But lest we miss the most important point, Paul's aim is not at all just to make us the stronger brother. That's far too low of an aim. He wants to make you like Christ, who is the strongest brother. Loved ones, I am so, I really am, I am so incredibly thankful that we belong to a church that loves doctrine, that's serious about doctrine. Um, sometimes you guys are too serious since you send me emails. Hey, did you really mean to say such and such and such and such? I'm glad we care about orthodoxy. But orthodoxy is not enough. It's not enough if you are the stronger brother. It's not enough. If you fail to bear with the, if you, if you fail to bear with the failings of each other, however right that you or, or I may be on some particular doctrine, then we are distorting the gospel. What sins did Christ pay for? The sins of those who had it all figured out? No, Jesus came into the world to save the most despicable, most unworthy, most prideful, most arrogant, most blaspheming, lying, idolatrous, self-righteous, backbiting, pharisaical, slandering sinners like you and me. That's who he came into the world to save. So that as new creations in Christ, we could imitate him and then bear with the failings of one another. There are more failings coming, lots more, gobs more, overflowing more. That's the chief issue in Rome. Not that Christians can merely bear with differences of opinions, but that Christians can bear with serious errors, with the smaller sins of one another. So here's our big idea this morning. 
God, God commands us to bear with the smaller sins of each other because Christ has already bore with all of our damnable sins. Let's begin with our doctrine. Now, chapter 15, the content here actually begins back in chapter 14, verse 1. And there was a crisis in the Roman church because as Jews and Gentiles started coming together as one body, they realized that they had very different beliefs about things like food and holidays. Look at chapter 14, verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. And then look at verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. The temptation for us as 21st century Christians is to overlay our 21st century ideas onto this passage and say something like, oh, I have vegetarian friends. Um, Paul is just telling me to get along with them. Or I have friends that don't celebrate Christmas. Uh, Paul is just telling me to respect them. Well, that's true as far as it goes, but it completely misses the crisis of what these arguments represented. This was a crisis. Um, we have to take uh, the first century into view. So consider just the example of eating. We'll just, we'll just go there. When many Jews came into the belief that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was their Savior, they struggled with the religious implications of what that meant. Uh, namely, how should we eat? I know that seems completely bizarre. That's because you're Gentiles, most of you. Um, the Old Testament was full, chock full, of strict dietary laws. And this diet in the Old Testament wasn't about preference or opinion. It was deeply religious. It was commanded by God himself. And it was meant to teach the Jews that what God required of them was that they were to be set apart, that they were to be consecrated, that in every spec respect of their behavior, um, including what they ate. Uh, Nathan Busenet says their diet reflected the holiness of God. Part of this was just, it immediately separated them from Gentiles because if all the Gentiles eat those things and we're not allowed to eat those things, then we're over here. Now what some of these Jewish Christians failed to see was that this Old Testament diet just like the Old Testament sacrificial system was meant to point them to Jesus Christ. So the Passover lamb, we're going to see this in Exodus 12, was a type that pointed them to Christ, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29. And just like that sacrificial system was meant to point them to Christ, so their diet was meant to, was a type of Christ 
uh, teaching them that he alone could remove their uncleanness and make them fit for God. And so when Jesus came, he specifically declared all foods, all foods clean, Mark 7, 19, because he was the one who was making his people clean. It was never about food. And Jesus wasn't contradicting Old Testament dietary laws. Rather, he was saying, look, I'm the fulfillment of those laws. They pointed to the cleanness that he would bring to his people through his sacrificial death. But so many of the first century Jewish Christians were not connecting those dots between Jesus and food. And this became a major stumbling block between Jewish and Gentile relations in the first century. For example, three quick examples. In Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16, Jesus gives Peter, the apostle, a vision, lowers unclean food down on a cloth, and he says, eat. And Peter argues with the Lord and says, no, Lord, I'm not touching that unclean food. In Acts 15, 29, the, the Jewish Christians in Antioch were struggling with the Gentiles eating meat sacrificed to idols. And so the elders in Jerusalem sent a letter to the church and said, Look, as a compromise, in order to keep the peace, the law of love, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Acts 15, 29. And likewise, as we saw just this, in this last book that we were in, three chapters, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, dedicated to the food problem in Corinth. This was a massive problem. So imagine for a moment, if you're in the Roman church uh, 2,000 years ago, and, and we, we worship together, and then afterwards we, we go downstairs and eat, and we, we see that there, veggie eaters are over here, and meat eaters are over here. And so we walk up to the veggie eaters, and, and we say, hey, why are you eating vegetables only? And they respond, because we believe that we are still bound to Old Testament dietary laws. We can't, eat, we can't risk eating that meat over there because it might have been sacrificed to idols. Their diet was determined by what they believed. It was a religious decision. For them, it was about worship. Look again at chapter 14, verse 2. Notice the third word. One person believes. It was a matter of faith. He may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Why did the weak person eat only vegetables? Because he thought he would be in sin to do otherwise. Now, how did, this, how did this turn into a crisis in the church? Well, because both groups, uh, the weaker and the stronger, began quarreling with one another. Um, and this quarrel had risen to such a pitch that some from both groups were calling for church discipline to be practiced against their opponents. Look at chapter 14 verse 13. Now he, he makes this statement because apparently this is what some were calling for. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any 
longer. The idea here is the same in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13, where Paul called for the judgment, the church discipline of an offending member. And apparently this dispute over food had reached such a pitch that people from both sides were calling for censure of the other group. The church was in absolute danger of disfellowshipping from one another. So what does Paul do? I mean, that's, that's the whole theology. It's several things, and we'll get to chapter 15, but f- five quick things. Number one, he commands the strong not to despise the weak, meaning don't treat them as inferior. Uh, chapter 14, verse 3a. Secondly, he commands the weak not to judge, to seek censure of the strong. Chapter 14, verse 3b. Number three, he taught that Um, He taught both brothers that if God had loved and received the other into his fellowship, that they had an obligation to do the same. Chapter 14, verse 3c. Number four, he taught that on issues like these, these issues, the weak, though they are in error, they can still honor the Lord. Uh, Verse 6, the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. And then lastly, number five, he taught that the kingdom of God does not consist in eating or drinking at all. Not in external things, but in peace and righteousness and joy in the Holy Spirit. Chapter 14, verse 17. Now, for our intents and purposes, chapter 15 is where Paul lands the plane. What happens if the weaker brother is not corrected? Paul does correct the weaker brother in verse 14 and verse 20. He says that all foods are clean, but apparently they didn't believe the apostle. I mean, take that in for a second. The the weak in this instance uh, did not believe that Jesus made all foods clean, Mark 7, 19, nor did they believe Paul's teaching on the subject. So how do you do church when the weaker brother isn't corrected on some doctrine or practice in the church? Now, remember, do not, please do not overhear me. We are all weaker brothers on some issues. All of us. All of your pastors have weaknesses and deficiencies. All of your pastors have errors. All of your pastors have areas where we are ignorant. And so do all of you. Every single Christian is the weaker brother in some area. So how do we do church together when the weaker brother doesn't get it? He's not corrected. Well, this is where chapter 15, verse 1 begins. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of The weak. Failings? 
Where did failings come from? I I didn't see that in chapter 14 at all. I thought that Paul was merely talking about opinions or or merely talking about things indifferent. No, Paul's revelation here is progressive. What he called opinions in chapter 14, verse 1, he now calls failings in chapter 15, verse 1, and he amplifies this teaching with a literary device called a chiastic structure. A a chiastic structure is where you have ideas A, B, then repeated B, A. So it's ideas then repeated in inverted order. So um, we can see this clearly in in chapter 15. So the A idea is we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. The B idea, not to please ourselves. B repeated, for Christ did not please himself. And then A repeated, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. What fell on Christ? Our reproaches. He bore our reproaches. And the parallel idea is that we are to bear the failings of one another. You see, if we don't interpret these failings as sin of some kind, then Paul's entire argument falls apart. Christ did not bear our opinions and our preferences or our Christian liberties. Christ bore our sin. And that raises the question then, what kinds of failings are we to bear with one another? Certainly not what the scripture calls presumptuous sins, those sins that are deliberate, those sins that are intentional. We know, again, that in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul specifically called the Corinthians to uh, discipline the man who had slept with his father's wife. So we are not obligated to, to bear with presumptuous sins. In fact, we're commanded to remove that type of leaven from the church. Then what are the failings that we're supposed to bear with? Or we're supposed to bear with unintentional sins. Those sins that are hidden. Those sins that are accidental. Those sins that are unseen due to a lack of understanding or faith. We're supposed to bear with those. And then we arrive at our doctrine then this morning. Our doctrine. God commands us to bear with the smaller sins of each other. Because Christ has already bore all of our damnable sins. So let's consider three cases uh, from Scripture that illustrate this biblical doctrine of unintentional sins. Case number one is Abimelech. Case number one is Abimelech. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 20. This is when Abraham traveled to Gerar and he was afraid that the inhabitants of the land would think that his wife, his wife Sarah was beautiful. And so he told the inhabitants of the land, now, now she's just my sister. Uh, he thought that they would try to kill him if they knew that she was his wife. So what happened was Abimelech, the king of Gerar, he saw that Sarah was beautiful and he took Sarah to be his wife. And what happened was is that God came to him in a dream and he said, you're going to die, Abimelech, for that, man's, that, that woman is another man's wife. 
Pick, picking up in verse 4. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Isn't that interesting? God affirms that Abimelech's sin was done with integrity. That sin was very, a lot of integrity in that sin, Abimelech. But it was still a sin. He closed all the wombs of the women in Abimelech's kingdom, and he, he goes to Abraham and rebukes him for leading him into this sin. Abraham prays for him, and then God lifts the judgment. Case number two, the ceremonial law, the ceremonial law. Please turn with me to Leviticus 4. Uh, this section sp uh, deals specifically with law, uh, the, the laws for sin offerings. How, how do we offer when, what kind of offerings do we make when these types of sins occur? So uh, this is what the Israelites were to bring if they sin. So look at what the Lord includes in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, then in the following verses he tells them what to bring. Uh, unintentional sin. You have to bring an offering. And this is repeated in Luke 5.14. When the apostle picks up in the, in the book of Hebrews, he, he points to that same idea of unintentional sins. Hebrews uh, 9.7, he says, but into the second only the high priest goes, but, he, but only once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Leviticus law dealt with unintentional sins. Uh, the psalmist. Let's turn to Psalm 1912. <clears throat> David prays to the Lord here. Who can discern his errors? Now, that, that's a rhetorical question. David is saying nobody can possibly discern his errors. All of them, that they're, they're beyond number. These are things that are beyond our light. And he continues in verse 12, Declare me innocent from hidden faults. And this is in contrast to the presumptuous sins that he mentions in the next verse. So these sins, these faults, were accidental, they were unplanned, they were unintentional. Now, why is this important? What kind of a God keeps track of unintentional sins? A holy God. A holy God does. 
God sees all of our unintentional sins. And in the three cases just mentioned, he required forgiveness and atonement to be made. God, our God, and, and, and you should thank God for this. God will not approve of even one sin. Imagine heaven would be ruined if he allowed even one sin to be in heaven with us. You see, the solution in the current season that we find ourselves in is not that we need a softer, gentler approach on sin. We need a stronger comprehension of the gospel of Christ. Jesus Christ came into the world not just to save us from our gross, disgusting sins that we are aware of. He came to cleanse us and wash us and justify us from the sins that we are totally oblivious to. He hasn't left one stain on our soul. Praise be to God that he has taken all of our sin and he has nailed them to his son on the cross. So that's our doctrine. Because Christ has borne all of our damnable sins, both seen and unseen, we are able to bear with the smaller sins of one another. So let's look at our duty now. Our first duty, perhaps, is just to consider the experiential pain of hearing that we have a hidden sin. Sometimes it's extremely painful to have our hidden sin pointed out. My son Josiah went to college this last fall. And it's been a bit of a tumultuous year for him. We've had a lot of phone conversations, heart-to-hearts. And what's kind of stirred to the surface is that he has expressed sorrow over some of the ways that I, in particular, have raised him. He told me, he told me this last week, and it about crushed me considering everything else that was already going on. He told me that he knew that I loved him, but that he believed that my love for him was no different than my love towards the church. And that I loved him simply because he was a member of the congregation, that I was obligated to love him. That really hurt. That crushed me. Josiah admitted he said, I, I, Dad, I know it's a hidden sin. I know it's a hidden fault. But it hurt him and it hurt me that when I heard about it. And, and, and consequently, if you're wondering, one of the reasons why I may be less accessible in the evenings nowadays is because I'm trying to make sure that my other two sons don't say that. My wife doesn't say that. My point here is that I understand. I understand that perhaps my sermon a few weeks ago touching on baptism caused some of you deep grief. That point is not missed on me. It's not missed on the elders. Uh, some of you uh, feel hurt that, that I said it's an unintentional sin. And I don't, I don't like for a moment 
that I caused any one of you hurt. I hate it. I hate it. I've lost sleep over it. Elders have lost sleep over it. But I don't think that the solution is to call our differences, well, our differences are mere preferences. Our differences are mere opinions. That will rob us, brothers and sisters. That will rob us of this passage of seeing the gospel more clearly. One of us has a hidden failing. And that means that Christ gets to be displayed in how we treat each other. Christ is not displayed if we merely tolerate you liking chocolate and I liking vanilla. The, the pagans can do that. So let's, let's examine ourselves. Our next duty is to examine ourselves. So my Baptist brothers and sisters, clearly you think that you're correct in your view of baptism, you, you wouldn't practice it that way if you didn't think that you were correct. Will you bear with what you think my failings are and the failings of your Presbyterian brothers? Will you bear with that? Paul told the stronger brothers in Rome to bear with the failings of the weaker brother. If you think you're the stronger brother on this point, will you bear with us? And my Presbyterian brothers, you think that you're correct in your position on infant baptism. Will you bear with the failings of your Baptist brothers that you think are failings? See, Paul is, is, is more interested not in who is correct, but who will bear. It's not enough to be correct. If we don't bear with one another's perceived failings, we failed to display the gospel. If we don't bear with another's failings, how are we any better than what we see in culture today? What, what is the big thing in culture today? Cancel culture. Oh, you don't agree with me? Canceled. That's how the world deals with each other's failings. We have Christ. We have Christ. So that brings us then to our next duty, which is we must rebuke ourselves. Brothers and sisters, we must rebuke ourselves if, if we have allowed any kind of party spirit to develop in this congregation. If there is the smallest hint of it, if there is the smallest crumb of it, the smallest whisper of party spirit, we need to rebuke ourselves. Rebuke yourself if you've divided into Baptist parties and Presbyterian parties. Presbyterians, rebuke yourself. Baptists, rebuke yourself if you have an arrogant attitude towards one another. Rebuke yourself if your heart is more tender to those who agree with you and less tender to those who do not. Did Christ die for Baptists? Did Christ die for Presbyterians? It's the wrong category. He died for sinners, of which we all are in the same pool. Don't you remember what God told the church in Ephesus? They got all of their doctrine right. What did, they, what did Christ have against them? 
They abandoned their first love. What was their first love? You could say Christ, absolutely. Who is Christ's body? We are. If we allow party spirit to take over this church, we will suffer defeat. We will lose. Which of your unbelieving family members and friends would ever want to darken the door of this church if it smacks of party spirit just like the world? Brings us then to our next duty, which is comfort. We can comfort ourselves here this morning. Some of you I know are in an extremely painful place. This trial has hit you really hard. And I want you to know that trial has hit all of us really hard. Our, our hearts are breaking for what has happened. Um, our hearts break when people leave. So here's the comfort. This trial will work steadfastness in you if you stand fast. Don't run away. B.J. Reiniger gave me permission to share her story. In 2015, um, B.J. wanted to leave the church. Uh, That was another difficult season that was um, extremely fun. Several families had left and... um, including some of her best and longest friends. And she, she wrote her testimony out during that season, and she said this, I literally felt like I was in a storm. I felt tossed to and fro among the waves. I was confused and angry. And after months of being put through an emotional ringer, I cried out to God, please steady me. Please help me to hear from you. Now, BJ would have left. She would have. Um, except for God answered her prayer in a gracious rebuke from a friend and because her husband stood in the way. And she will tell you that she is so thankful, so thankful that God prevented her from leaving. Not because we are the best church. There's no such thing. But because God taught her that the testing of her faith was a precious thing, more precious than gold and silver. That's what, that's what the Apostle James says, count it all joy, brothers, when you face trials of various kinds for the testing of your faith. The testing of your faith will bring steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and lacking in nothing. Loved ones, if you're under duress, take comfort. God is testing your faith. He's strengthening your faith. He's working steadfastness in you so that he can shape you and form you and make you perfect and lacking in nothing. Don't run. Stay the course. God will use this trial to strengthen you more than you could know. So those are our duties. Let's look then at our delight. And our delight in this case is to bear with the failings of others. That's, that is our delight. 
It's a delight. What, what does it mean to bear? It means to, to support your brother, to sustain him, to carry him, to hold him up. The, 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 one of the best images is of the paralytic man in Luke chapter 5. How did the paralytic man get to Jesus for his healing? His friends bore him on their shoulders. And when they couldn't pass through the crowd, they bore him up to the top of the roof. And then they bore him down through the roof. They bore the paralyzed man because he was their friend. And loved ones, we are more than just friends. We are far more than friends. Look at your brother. Look at the one that you think has a failing. Look at the one that you think is paralyzed in error. And consider all of these motives for bearing with him in spite of his failings. Number one, he may not have water baptism in common with you, but you both have been baptized by the same spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body and are all made to drink of one spirit. Second motive, we may have different failings, but we both share the spotless righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be our sin so that we, might become the righteousness of Christ. It doesn't say I, it doesn't say me, it's that we together are the righteousness of Christ. Third motive, we may subscribe to different creeds on water, but we share the same Father in heaven. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. We have one God, one Father. Fourth motive, we may practice outward things differently, but we have all of the same inward things. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, and I would add baptism. Kingdom of God is not made of those things. It's made of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So, those are the motives. What then are the means? What are the means? How do we carry out this obligation? Where do we find the strength to bear with the failings of one another? Well, our passage tells us where, where we find the strength. Verse 1, bear with the failings of the weak. 4, verse 3, Christ did not please himself but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul here is quoting from Psalm 69.9, where the pre-incarnate Christ is speaking about his future sufferings. And he says there, for zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Christ was so zealous for God's house. Who is God's house? We are. We're the household of God, Ephesians 2.19 says. He was zealous for God's house, 
so that he bore all of their reproaches that they reproached against God. Beloved, uh, our failings are not chiefly horizontal. Our failings are chiefly vertical. David said this, against thee and thee only have I sinned, meaning however you have failed your brother, however you have judged him or despised him or slandered him or accused him or are arrogant towards him or have belittled him or have separated from him or have not been tenderhearted towards him, these reproaches against your brother have been against God. Against God. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. So what did Jesus do when those reproaches landed on God? He bore them himself. He bore all of our damnable sins. He sweat blood. He was beaten. His flesh was torn. His, he cried out in agony. He was completely forsaken by God. He breathed his last. He was buried in the ground because of our reproach. That's where you find strength. To bear with your brother. What are your brother's minuscule failings? compared to your monstrous, damnable sins against God. What are they? They're nothing. They're dust on the scales. They're a drop of water in the ocean of infinite guilt. And if God has wiped away your infinite guilt, how could we not bear with the drop, with the dust particle of our brother's failing? All right, so we've seen the motives to bear, the means to bear. Now let's finally look at the manner in which we should bear with one another. How should we bear with one another? What should our disposition be? Will grumbling do? I'll, I'll bear with the failures if I must. Is, is that how we are to bear with one another's failures? The great Baptist Puritan John Bunyan points out that when Christ bore our failures, he was the most cheerful in all of his ministry. <laughs> Listen to what he says. We never, quote, we never read that Jesus Christ was more cheerful in all of his life on earth than when he was going to lay down his life for us. Jesus was most cheerful when he went to die for us? Well, that's a nice sentiment, but, but is he right? Well, what did he do on, on the last meal that he had with his disciples before he went to his crucifixion? We quoted every communion Sunday. He, he, Matthew 26, 26, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Did you catch that? He thanked and blessed God for the breaking of his body, for the crushing of his soul, for the spilling of his blood. Thank you, God. Okay, you're not convinced. Immediately following that, they immediately leave to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. What do they do before they leave? They sing. Jesus leads them in a hymn. 
He's singing on his way to death. We're going to the garden. And this is such a paradox. How could Jesus know that he was going to suffer more than any man suffer and still be full of joy and cheer about it? Because you are his house, loved ones. Zeal for his house has consumed him. Hebrews 12, 2, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He went to the cross because of joy. That's the manner in which we should bear with the failings of one another. Not with grumbling, but with gladness. Someone fails against you, this is what you're going to say. Thank you, God, that you are making me like the strongest brother, Christ. Thank you, God, that for in this moment, I get to bear the failings of my brother like Jesus bore mine. Thank you, God, that you are shaping me and molding me into the image of Jesus. Thank you that you are giving me the love towards my failing brother that you have towards me. Thank you that I get a taste of heaven. Thank you that I get a taste of the triune love of God in my soul. Thank you for this joy set before me that I get to bear it just like my father did, just like my Savior did. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the failings that are evident in this church. that are evident in each other. The weaknesses, the blotches, the stains that we are so readily to see. Thank you, God, that we have the opportunity to to imitate our Savior. Do this work in us, O God. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.